Welcome to Light Warrior Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Can, author of the number one bestseller, Guide to Healing Chronic Pain, A Holistic Approach. And I love to share the amazing work of energy healing with my tribe, my Light Warriors. And please join us on Facebook. Um, just check out Light Warrior Network on Facebook, and it's free to join. You can also get some free gifts on my website. I call it the Light Warrior Empowerment Package. It's karencan.com forward slash free gift. Now today we have a very special guest. She is a buddy of mine all the way down under. <laughs> so uh, so this is a pre-recorded show just so that she doesn't have to get up at 3 a.m. in the morning to talk to me. So Dr. Kelly Halls, who has been with me before on Light Warrior Radio, um, we spoke about pet vaccines. Now, as many people know that have followed me for a while, I recently, about a year ago, um, my first dog, I adopted my first dog from the um, the shelter. And I was pretty nervous about it because I'd never had pets growing up, and I was just so worried about being a good mom. <laughs> I don't have, you know, human children of my own, uh, so but I wanted to be the best mom, and of course I wanted the the best for my dog, and so I had a lot of questions about vaccines. So um, that was an amazing show. So if you're just new um, to my show, definitely look that up on uh, the Blog Talk Radio page. My uh, interview with Dr. Kelly Halls about pet vaccines. Now today's topic is going to be optimal nutrition. We spoke a little bit about this on the last um, interview about how you know cancers and chronic disease and you know all these things that us humans seem to have more and more of over the last you know hundred years that pets our pets are actually suffering similar things. So our dogs and cats are getting tumors and you know all sorts of chronic illnesses and diabetes. I hear about friends having to inject their cats multiple times a day with insulin. I mean, crazy, crazy stuff. So I thought, gee, why don't we have Dr. Kelly back on the show to talk about optimal nutrition for dogs and cats. So she's a holistic veterinarian, and her website is uh, bentonsroadvet.com.au. So again, bentonsroadvet.com.au, and you can check out um, all sorts of things. Uh, they have a blog, and soon they're going to be launching a new program, and we'll have uh, Dr. Kelly Hells tell us about that program uh, in a little bit later. So without further ado, hi there, Dr. Hells, Dr. Kelly, hi. Good morning, Karen. Thank you very much for having me back on the show. I know it's good evening there, but it's still good morning here, so yeah. um, it's wonderful <laughs> to be on again. Yeah, that is awesome. That is awesome. Thank you so much for coming back. And um, I know that uh, when I started, you know, being a pet mom, <laughs> that I wanted the best. And, and there were so many varieties I, uh, of food. I went to the, the Man and Beast, which are, is our local holistic um, pet store. And it was like, oh, she's like, well, we have this option and we have this and this is raw and this is, you know, this got legumes and this doesn't have legumes and this is, you know, we don't have, you know, too many with grains and, and I was just kind of lost. So it's I did what I do best. I, I just muscle tested. <laughs> which one was best for Apache and which one he would like. So, uh, but I would love for you to share with us, first of all, how did you decide to become a vet? And then number two, how did you get interested in this holistic stuff, like talking about optimal nutrition? 
Yes, thank you. Um, I have been a vet now for um, a bit over 15 years and I really can't remember the first day that I decided this was what I was going to do. It's just always been there. Um, so I'm one of those really lucky people that I've always wanted to be a vet. I managed to get into vet school, managed to get through and managed to get into this career um, and I love it and still love it today and um, love it more and more. Um, I guess through my um, early days of my veterinary career I was a pretty conservative, just a usual veterinarian and um, I guess we practice quite reactionary medicine you know we wait for the dog to come in with an infection then we give antibiotics we treat that infection and then it goes away and then we just wait and see and it comes back ah. again and I, I felt that we were just being very reactionary in that that type of um, medicine as well as that I just get I get very dismayed at the um, amount of chronic disease that walks into the clinic, you know, and the, the chronic disease is coming into the clinic in pets younger and younger. So it's not the 13-year-old dog coming in with liver disease, it's the four-year-old dog coming in with liver disease. It's like, oh my God, what is going on that is creating so much disharmony in these animals' bodies to be creating such serious disease at an early age? So that and um, and a bit of a journey with my own daughter and her, her having a little bit of gastrointestinal issues as she from when she was born pretty much um, has taken me on a bit of a, a learning curve um, and a long research period of, of really finding out what it does mean to be well nourished and good quality nutrition. Um, and I was a little bit alarmed when I'm learning about all the importance of fresh foods and avoiding processed foods um, and the importance of gut health to our overall health and our immune system. And I kept having in the back of my mind so why am I saying that pet owners should be feeding a you know this bag of dry food it's it goes against everything that current medical human medical knowledge is geared towards why is there such a disparity so when I looked into that further and further I, I was actually even more dismayed and um, and realized I think we've got it a little bit wrong in some of our veterinary advice um, and so that has prompted me to offer some new veterinary advice about fresh food nutrition Oh, fascinating. That's fascinating. Well, it's so common, I think, for those of us uh, in the healing world that, you know, when it hits home, like you're with your daughter <laughs> or with my myself, my personal health, my physical health, that we're looking some, you know, outside the normal uh, for advice because, you know, what's normal and what most people do is just not working. And uh, so lucky for those pets that you take care of that you expanded, you know, all your knowledge and, and understanding of that. So that's pretty neat. Um, so uh, let's go and, and let's talk a little bit about what the average person who has a pet going to the actual average grocery store and I, I'm not sure that our grocery stores are a lot different from your regular grocery store so we'll say like what what kind of food do people find in the regular grocery store and what's the problem with those yeah, so I would imagine our grocery stores are very similar to yours. They are massive um, and around the outside of a grocery store you find all your fruit and veg and your dairy and your meat but on the inside and the part where they pay most attention to and most um, storage and floor space to are all of the, the processed and packaged products. The pet food aisle forms one of these aisles and you've got you know, a big massive aisle, cats on one side, dogs on the other and you've got bags of dry food and you've got cans of canned food and they're your options. You either you either go dry food or you go canned food. Um, we also have in Australia, which are similar, probably similar in the US, is really large um, pet wholesalers. Um, so great big huge warehouses devoted to everything that a pet needs. And again, you know, half of their floor space is dedicated to selling these big bags of dry kibble diets um, and canned diets. Um, there is 
beginning to be a little bit more variety um, in some of those pet stores where we've got a little bit more of fresh foods coming in and I think that's going to continue. Um, but at the moment, yeah, the, the focus really is on these prepackaged diets. Um, and I, where do I even start with what the problem with these diets are? Um, I guess the, the beginning is that these foods, we, um, we've come to accept as the norm um, and we've, con we've accepted it as the norm because you, you know you go either to your vet or you go to the grocery store or you go to these pet super stores and this is the advice that you're told. You should feed these bags and it has everything that your pet needs, your dog or your cat. It's fully balanced nutrition and you definitely shouldn't feed anything else. So we go, aha, that's good, take that bag. Um, we don't do any more thinking about it because we've been told by people you know, with more knowledge, so we accept that and we carry on. And so now modern pet food really has just become normal to be really, really processed. Um, uh, in a nutshell, when you look at dry food for um, for a dog and a cat, and I guess we have to remember that dogs and cats, by their evolution, are carnivores. Um, dogs are a little bit omnivorous in their um, diet choices, but cats really are obligate carnivores, and their whole digestive system has evolved through thousands of years to hunt small animals and to eat and digest meat, bone, skin, organ, um, intestinal contents, uh, and that's it. So we can't we have to re we have to respect the evolution of these pets. We can't simply change their form of food drastically and expect that that won't have a detrimental effect over time. When we look at dry food, our dry food is uh, you know 50 to 60 percent of a, a processed carbohydrate of some sort. It might be corn, it might be wheat, um, it might be rice. Um, there's a whole heap of grain-free options available, but they're still just a different form of carbohydrate. But proportionally, the amount of carbohydrate in these diets is drastically different to what their evolutionary or instinctual diet is, and that has um, huge impact on their metabolism over time. Wow. So, you know, I knew about the cats being the carnivores. You'd mentioned that previously, um, but I don't buy cat food, so <laughs> I actually didn't know that in the grocery store that they actually feed the cats carbohydrates. Oh, yes, absolutely. So a dry food, to be able to form a biscuit, um, you know, if you, if you do any home baking yourself, to form a crunchy biscuit, you've got to have carbohydrate of some sort, flour usually. Um, and so the same with cat food. For it to form that crunchy biscuit, it has to have a large component of carbohydrate. Um, and so these, these diets still for cats are, are proportionally really, really inappropriate for a cat's metabolism. And this is why we get so much obesity and diabetes in cats and pancreatitis and liver disease, um, because we are feeding them things that we shouldn't be feeding them. We should just be feeding them meat and meat-based products. So all of those bone, skin, organ has to be in there somehow. Um, and a little bit of vegetation, as in 5%, but they just, they're just not designed to digest and utilize carbohydrates as an energy source. It puts a huge amount of stress on their pancreas um, and hence the diabetes and pancreatitis. Wow. Over that's amazing. Well, and but but, but what about the uh, the canned food? I mean, the, I, not that I bought any, but <laughs> the canned cat food. Uh, I know in when I was living in Canada, it was like this treat. Like they had this whole commercial where they had this crystalline, you know, uh, goblet, and they put the wet, you know, food from the can for this little, you know, prissy, you know, white cat. And I thought, ooh, you must have to be rich to buy that. You know, <laughs> that was my you know, childhood thinking like, ooh, this is special stuff. So is that a lot better because it's like meat? Mm, sadly not. Canned food is definitely better um, for cats than dry food uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one is it can, it can have more protein and it can have more meat in it because it doesn't have to form that biscuit is dry food. Um, but you will still find a, a huge amount of carbohydrate in that by percentage. Um, and they use 
carbohydrate also to boost the protein content in canned food as well. So it isn't, it still isn't um, biologically appropriate. The it does have moisture in it, which is critically important to a cat. So if people are wanting a commercial food for a cat, I always say definitely go canned food over dry food for them. Um, mm. But still, when you look at those ingredients and and where the ingredients have come from, you know, the the meat meal that goes into it, it's not good quality of meat. It's not the meat that you would think you would buy in a, a grocery store where it's good muscle meat. Um, it's, it's all the end products of meat processing. So, you know, unfortunately it is things like chicken feet and beaks and feathers and things that, um, you know, aren't of a great nutritional quality. Um, and that's all rendered down and put into these um, foods. The, the chunks in them are not always muscle meat chunks. They're often gluten chunks. Um, and so I think we get, again, really misled by the labeling and the pictures on the front um, and not really understanding what's in there. Oh, interesting. Well, in, in ancient societies that were very healthy, Weston A. Price did all the studies around the world in the 30s, and my understanding was that people ate the the liver and the pancreas and the kidneys and not just muscle meat, uh, yeah. and they would use chicken feet, you know, to, to boil uh, down into to get this broth and the gel, but it sounds yeah. like the kind of food that they're having is really not rich in organ meat. It's like these bits of ends of stuff. Yeah, that's right. There will be some organ meat in there, yes, and absolutely there's a place for the cartilaginous product to be broken down into a bone broth and, and fed, and they're very healthy that way. But those, so we're feeding that for the collagen and the cartilage and, and um, glucosamine and chondroitin and things like that. We're not feeding that as the protein source. Um, right. When we need to meet the protein requirements for a cat or a dog, um, they're designed to get their protein requirements from muscle meat. Oh, fascinating, fascinating. Um, okay, so we've so the dry food sounds horrible now. <laughs> you know, now when I look down the aisles, I could because right now, um, you know, my my I think I mentioned last time on the show, one of my friends has a um, uh, I think it's a husky. Hard to yeah. tell because he's so fat now. Um, and this husky got so fat, and he really smells. Um, and uh, you know, I'm thinking digestion you know first thing when I walk in the in the, in the place um, and and he's got these sores on his skin um, and so I told my friend well you know you probably need to change his diet but who do I, who am I right I'm not a vet so he's like oh yeah yeah you know I, I, I did I, I changed it to um, you know grain-free or gluten-free or whatever he said and he says I don't think it made a difference well I, I, I mean maybe it, it's starting to make a difference but um, what about those kind of grain-free diets that are now in the kibble? Is that, how much healthier is that? Yeah, I don't really think it's that much healthier and I think the marketing behind the grain-free varieties of dry food have come about because in the human literature and the human world we've got a big swing away from grains um, because so many more people are, are either celiac or gluten intolerant um, and so people are saying, oh, I feel better on grain-free diet therefore my dog will feel better on a grain-free diet and I think that's a little bit, um, it's a bit of a big jump. We do have to recognise that dogs, are, um, a lot of dogs can be gluten intolerant um, so I definitely agree that uh, removing those gluten containing grains from dogs can be beneficial but the dry foods take out the grain based carbohydrate and replace it with another form of carbohydrate so it might be potato based or it might be pea and lupins um, it, it might be you know other of the sort of more ancient grains um, but still at the end of the day the proportion of carbohydrate in that diet is too high for a dog so um, I generally speaking I'm not 
opposed to feeding grains to dogs if they're in a form of um, you know, fresh whole grains rather than the highly processed. Um, the other problem that we see with the grain component in dry foods is that grains can often have mycotoxins, so that's a, a, you know, like a mould growing on it. Oh. Um, and when you put those into a bag, you can still get those mycotoxins growing um, and these can really be detrimental to a dog's liver over time or a cat's liver, whichever is eating it. Um, so in, in one respect, yes, it is a good idea to not feed grains to a dog, but I think the marketing has been misplaced and it's, it's aimed at um, things that are more human-based. We've got to look at the carbohydrate as a whole. So carbohydrate is the inappropriate part for dogs. Um, yes, grains aren't, re aren't real good, but you can't just take out the grains and replace it with potato and think that that's a good diet. Aha, gotcha. Okay, and then you mentioned about cats earlier, you know, that 5% maybe vegetarian or ve vegetation. Uh, yes. what, about, what about dogs? They seem to be eating grass, and I, I don't know whether to stop a badgie eating grass or let him eat grass. Definitely don't stop him eating grass. He will, he will not actually be able to digest that grass very well because he's a carnivore and his gut doesn't have, um, you know, cellulase enzymes to be able to digest the grass cell wall. Um, but let him eat it. That's not a problem. Dogs are hugely more of an omnivorous. They belong to the, the sort of the group of mesocarnivores, um, which means that about 50 to 70% of their diet should be meat and meat-based products and therefore 30 to 50% of their diet can be vegetable-based products. And if you, if you kind of go back to the wild dog, um, the wild dog would sure go and hunt a, a big animal and then go back and they'd devour as much as they possibly could and then they'd sleep and digest for a couple of days. Then they'd get up and they're not quite hungry enough to justify the energy to spend to go hunting again. And so then they go foraging. So they go foraging for, you know, fallen fruits under trees. They forage for, um, you know, roots and tubers and grasses and herbs, um, rotten vegetation on the floor. They'd eat a lot of insects. And they'd also actually eat a lot of um, other animals' poo. Um, and that forms that part of the diet. So they would eat that for a couple of days before they got hungry enough to really justify the expense of, of hunting. Um, and they don't really hunt very well until they have got a completely empty stomach. Um, mm. And they're in the prime position to go and, and hunt again and, and to be successful. So uh, dogs, in comparison to cats, they're completely different animals. And, and, um, and we have to also respect that. So dogs, much more omnivorous. Cats, obligate carnivores. The 5% of vegetation that forms part of the cat's diet would more um, accurately reflect the vegetation that's in the intestinal system of the animal that they eat. That they eat, sorry. Um, so they've eaten a small animal that, you know, like a rabbit that has eaten the vegetation. That vegetation has been partially digested. They eat that rabbit or that bird or that mouse or whatever whole. And so they do get that vegetable matter from that. And that does play a, a really important part in their gut and um, offering, um, you know, prebiotics and probiotics and some uh, vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients. So that is important. Um, but dogs will do a lot more scavenging and, and um, eating that sort of thing directly from the, um, from the environment. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's amazing. Now, um, what about, you mentioned mycotoxins before, like in the grains, and even if it's, you know, stored or dried, there, these toxins can be there and be hard on the liver. What about peanut butter? I heard that peanuts can have mold. Do they have mycotoxins too? Um, I'm not, uh, peanuts can have a mold on them. Um, I'm not sure that we see that. We, we don't use peanuts in pet food here um, and we I don't think we see that really in um, in our peanut butters and things but if you're eating fresh peanuts I think you, you do need to be aware that that is a possibility. Um, whether that's the same mycotoxin as what we find in pet foods I'm not really sure I'm sorry. Oh that's okay well um, uh, you know the peanut butter is very popular here to put in what you know, the, I don't, you probably have the same thing there, like Kong balls as a yes. treat. And, yes. and I think partly it's just entertaining to watch the, 
a dog trying to try to get at the peanut butter. So I, I was always concerned because I, I guess in humans we were told, you know, don't don't eat too much peanut butter because of mold. So what's what what's your opinion on feeding peanut yeah, butter? Yeah, again, a little bit of peanut butter inside a Kong is a fantastic thing for a dog. It's really um that sort of you know, trying to get them to think, how am I going to get this treat out of this Kong and use their brain to get their nutrition is really important on a psychological basis for a, a dog. Um, so it is absolutely fine and heaps of people here do put peanut butter inside the Kong. Um, I think in the US you have to be a little bit more careful as well because a lot of your peanut butters contain xylitol, um, which is an oh, artificial right. yeah. and that, that's quite toxic to dogs. We in Australia don't have, we don't put xylitol in our peanut butter. Um, so I, I just know that that's a bit of a difference between the US and Australia. Yeah, we don't have too many brands that uh, have that, and usually, you know, the ones that we have are the ones where the you know the oil sitting on top, like they just put peanuts in it. So yeah, uh, yeah so but yeah. Uh, so I try not to do it too often just because. But oh my gosh, he loves it. I think. Oh, okay. And it's an absolutely fine thing to feed from time to time. And as I said, the um, the stress release of trying to get food out of something like that, you know, it's hugely important to a dog to have to think to get some food. Mm, that's great. So I'm going to actually uh, get some questions going here. Okay. So we have a question from Lynn. Let me unmute Lynn. Hi, Lynn. Oh, hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. So uh, what's uh, you have a great question here. What well, you can go ahead and and ask it, and then. Well, we feed um, both our dog and cat raw diet. And I'm just wondering whether we should be subsidising some sort of probiotic for both the cat and the dog. Great question. Because I noticed I Kelly, Kelly said that the cat would naturally um, get that probiotic from eating a whole animal. But um, yeah, should, should we be providing them with... Probiotic um, too. Yeah. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks for asking that great question. It's always a really good idea to provide, um, at least from time to time, some probiotic support for dogs and cats. Um, so you, you can provide probiotics to dogs and cats in a whole heap of ways. There are um, you know, formulations of powders and capsules that you can give, or you can also feed probiotic foods to them. So you can give cats a little bit of um, yogurt and kefir. Um, you can feed them green tripe, um, depending on the availability of where you are. We do have some great products in Victoria, an organic green tripe, which does provide them with um, th those bugs that they would get out of the intestinal system of the animal. Um, and yes, it is really important to provide that for them. Oh, fantastic. All right. We'll be visiting soon. Thank you. <laughs> oh, Thanks. wonderful. Um, that's a great question, and uh, it's funny because I, you know, I was feeding probiotics to Apache kind of regularly, and then he kind of stopped eating it. <laughs> but oh. then I stopped for a while and then now I just started again and he'll eat it. And I'm like, hmm, maybe he knows when he really wants to. Uh, yeah. Okay, so David has a great question too. Let me unmute David here. Hey, David. Hi, how's it going? Great. How are you? I'm, I'm very, very well, thank you. Excellent. Go ahead and ask your question. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, we have a, a new puppy at home and um, just uh, trying to work out whether uh, we should be feeding a, a dry food um, or, or a, a raw food and, and what kind of diet would be best? 
Thanks, David, for asking that great question. Um, I think, first of all, I, I don't I don't really like dry foods for any animal, um, but it is critically important for a, a young puppy, um, particularly if your dog is of the larger variety, it's critically important for them to get the right balance of calcium and phosphorus in their diet so that their bones can grow well. So um, I, I do always like raw foods, and you can feed cooked foods in a balanced way as well, but nutritional balance is the key. So if you're the sort of person that can put some time into um, finding out the proportions of what you should be feeding and you need to feed a lot of bones to a growing puppy, um, then you should be feeding raw because raw is a lot better nutritionally. You've got a lot more concentration and quality of nutrients in raw food than you do in dry food. But for those people that might be a little bit less, maybe they're a bit um, time pressed and, and don't have the energy or the effort to put into that, then it would be better to feed a good quality balanced dry food than a poorly balanced raw or cooked food diet. And that's really important. If we muck up that nutritional balance, particularly for a growing puppy, then we can get things really, really wrong. So I would always advocate a raw food diet or a fresh food diet as long as it's nutritionally balanced. If you can't achieve that balance for whatever reason, time, energy, um, desire, then do feed a good quality dry or, or canned diet or um, even better, look for some of those um, the newer forms of food on the market. So there's a lot of good varieties of air-dried raw food or freeze-dried raw food or even cooked foods on the market that are better quality than a dry food. Okay. Um, and, and just uh, just with that one... Once they're past the, the puppy stage, um, at, at what time would it be? If I can't do the the, the raw food, um, at, at what age would I start to uh, feed them feed them the raw food after I get past the puppy stage? Oh, that completely depends on what breed of dog you've got. So the smaller breeds will reach skeletal maturity at a lot earlier, maybe about six to eight months, whereas large breeds and even giant breeds won't reach skeletal maturity until 12 or even 18 months or 24 months for the really huge breeds. So it depends on the type of dog that you've got. Um, and I would always suggest talking to your local vets to find out what is the appropriate diet for that life stage um, to make sure you are giving the right nutrients. But um, really, it, it isn't, it's not rocket science. It is easy and it is quite achievable. Um, you need to make sure you're providing a lot of the calcium in the form of bones because that's the natural way that a young dog would get their calcium requirements. And you can buy bones easily for them to chew on. You can buy ground bone that comes in raw foods as well. Um, so yeah, bone is the best source of calcium for a young growing dog and it just depends on the breed as to how long you've got to feed that sort of diet for. Fantastic. Um, just one, one final question. Um, is there any bones that I should be concerned about um, or, or are all bones okay? Oh no, bones are a huge one. There's um, there's good ones and bad ones all, all over the place. Um, particularly for a, a young dog, you've got or actually for any dog, you've got small teeth in a puppy. Um, so you need to feed a, a bone that is nice and soft and that they can get their teeth into. And something that contains a lot of cartilage is really appropriate for a young puppy as well. So the bones that I love are chicken frames or chicken backs. Um, chicken wings, uh, turkey wings, and um, and turkey bones. Um, also, some of, like we in Australia, we've got kangaroo uh, tails, <laughs> which we might not have over in the US. <laughs> um, but basically, you want to look for the bones that belong to the smaller animals because they're they're less dense and less hard. A lot of people are fans of feeding, um, you know, the big marrow bones of cows to their dogs, and unfortunately, that that 
Weight-bearing bone to hold up a 500 kilogram animal is incredibly dense and incredibly hard, and it's responsible for fracturing a lot of teeth, um, particularly the carnassial tooth in a dog, um, which then means I have to do surgery to take it out, and it's not, not a fun surgery. So I always recommend to feed the soft bones and bones of young animals, so lambs, lamb bones, rabbits, um, rib bones, brisket bones, things like that. Don't feed the long weight-bearing bones of um, of the large ruminants. They're just too hard for dogs and they can cause a lot of issues. Fantastic. Thank you very much. No worries. Oh, what a great question. Yeah, I'm just furiously writing notes here. <laughs> <laughs> like, no to that cowboy bone. Okay. Um, uh, you know, the... Um, uh, they, I, I, this this place that's uh, near us, uh, they um, she calls it. She's a holistic nutritionist, and and uh, the store is called Man and Beast. Um, she has these uh, dehydrated um, chicken wings and duck feed, and you know things like that. So um, I tried giving Apache. You're gonna laugh, okay? But I tried giving Apache a raw chicken feed from the farmer. Okay, yep. and basically he kind of dragged it all over the house, and here I am, you know, with my airbiotic spray, like, you know, cleaning the floor everywhere he's dragging it, and I'm like, I don't think this is how I'm supposed to feed him that, so could you give me some advice on that? <laughs> uh, my advice is always bones are an outside meal. I, I wouldn't have ah. chicken bones inside my house, because if that gets lost, that's going to come up again in a week thinking to, it's going to not be good, not be good. So bones in my area are definitely an outside thing. Um, chicken feet, um, I, I would imagine your dog just hasn't had access to them before and isn't used to chewing them. Mm -hmm. um, so I always like people to be with their dog when they're first introducing a new food item or a new bone to their dog um, because you might have differences in their personality that means they may or may not tolerate them. Um, some dogs may just go, oh my God, what is that? I don't recognize it as food and need a little bit of encouragement. Um, whereas you might have some others like a Labrador would be a, a typically a, a gulper of a bone and so you need to be with them while they're eating it so that you make sure they get used to it and learn to chew it slowly um, and you might you need to also match the size of the bone to the dog so again a little puppy you know chicken wings and chicken backs are great but a chicken um, a chicken neck in a Labrador is going to be just too small and they'll just inhale it and it won't do any good for their teeth that's for sure um, oh. Yeah, so you just need to be uh, you just need to be wary of bones. They they are they can cause issues, and I know a lot of vets are really anti bones because they break teeth. They can get stuck in the esophagus. You can if you feed a cooked bone, um, which is you know against the law, um, <laughs> it's a really bad idea in a dog. If you feed a cooked bone, they they're not digestible at all, and so they're the ones that get stuck and can puncture guts and things, and they're really serious. So, um, you do need to be careful with bones and and just assume that not assume that there's no risk. There's definitely risk feeding bones, um, but I think if we look at the risk of feeding you know, well-chosen bones under supervision. I think that's very, very small. If we don't feed bones to our dogs, um, let alone the poor psychological well-being, but that dog's going to go and get dental disease. And so the, the chronic infection and inflammation and pain that it goes with dental disease, which is a huge risk, I think that risk outweighs the small risk of feeding bones. So I'm a fan of feeding bones, definitely, but it has to be done. Um, you need to know what you're doing. You need to choose the appropriate bone and you need to be there supervising your dog. Mm, great advice. And if uh, if if we're choosing like Apache really likes that dehydrated, you know, the turkey wing and the chicken, um, yeah. oh, chicken feed. I think it was that she she had. Is that as good as you know the the raw or not so much because it's dried? 
Yeah, I would think that a fresh bone would be better than a dehydrated bone um, because fresh bone, the cartilage is a different consistency and it's nice and soft and they can get their teeth into it and that's where you get that mechanical cleaning of the teeth um, ah. and that's important for a dog. Whereas when you're feeding the dehydrated bone, they're a bit more brittle. Um, I don't think they're cooked. You'd have to check if they're cooked at all because if they've cooked the bone or smoked the bone, no. then I think that does change the composition of the bone and they're more likely to shatter and cause problems. So for that reason, I always recommend fresh bones um, rather than the dried or dehydrated ones. Okay. But that makes so much sense what you said about match the size. Of yes. the bone, you know, because I because I was looking in the freezer at the at the at the store, and I'm like, wow, theirs are so small. Now, of course, it makes sense why they would sell it that way. <laughs> that's so, true. For, for small now, um, gosh, I have so many questions. So, <laughs> uh, one other question was uh, so my and you kind of touched on this. So my so my brother loves cats. Unfortunately, he's allergic to cats and of course he won't listen to me as far as how to get rid of allergies but anyway so he, he, he watches all these YouTube videos on cats and, and how to feed cats and you know and I mentioned you know a raw diet and he says well I don't think I'm going to do that because if you get that wrong you could kill your cat so <laughs> can you just go a little bit more detail about you, you know like I guess there was a YouTuber and you might know who she is I, I don't remember the name where she's talking about you know if you're going to feed your cat you know organ meats and raw and make it yourself you have to really know what you're doing or you're going to hurt the animal and you might as well just go to the store and get whatever <laughs> cat food. Yeah, that, that's true and it, um, I've mentioned before that cats are a little bit tricky with their nutrition and they're also a little bit tricky with their um, choices of food. So for that reason, I usually recommend to my clients to go to the store and purchase a well-balanced raw food, like one of the BARF type diets. So BARF, B-A-R-F, means biologically appropriate raw food. And a BARF type diet has got all of the organ meat um, and the bone and the, and the muscle meat uh, and probiotics and a little bit of vegetation. It's got it all minced together so that it's mm. a homogeneously balanced diet. The pro you can definitely feed your cat a raw diet yourself and get the proportions right. The problem with cats though is that if you offer them a plate of say 70% muscle meat, 20% organ meat, 10% um, bone, a little bit of vegetation, they're likely to sit there and go, oh, I'll eat the liver and that's it and ignore the rest. And cats are really, really fussy and are really, really stubborn. I don't know if you've ever tried to change the mind of a cat, but you know, you just can't. Um, so for that reason, it can be really easy to get it wrong for cats. And so for that reason, I do recommend buying a commercially, uh, a commercially balanced diet that is homogenous. So it's in a ground meat patty um, that you just feed and you know that they're getting all of those components mixed up together rather than offering them a choice. Um, it's, it's only, if you get a young cat and you bring them up on, on a real food diet, then it's easy. But if you try and transition an older cat onto a fresh food diet, you can, you can just get it wrong because they just sit there and snub their nose at that ingredient and refuse it and you can't get it into them. And so over time that will then play a part. Ah, okay. Yeah, so he was right. Okay. So <laughs> but um, I didn't know. Uh, so that's very interesting. And, and as far as uh, dogs go, um, you know, I heard that the, there's, there's this whole list I saw online, like what vegetation or fruit not to feed a dog. And um, unfortunately, or fortunately, um, so we took this little video because James thought it was so cute that he, James was eating, you know, organic grapes and it dropped on the ground. And of course, the pastor's trying to chase this thing and it looks hilarious, right? So we took a video of it. Of course, people were like, what are you doing feeding grapes to your dog? You know? <laughs> And I was like, ah! So I was looking at it online, and it's like, I guess somebody was saying about myths or something and said, well, 
you know, there was some report of some, you know, toxic failure, whatever, uh, but it was like this one case, and, you know, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, grapes, I mean, are toxic to humans if they're not organic. I mean, really toxic, you know, like all the herbicides and everything like that. So I'm just curious as to, like, your take on the whole, you know, fruits and vegetables and yeah, you know, what's, yeah. what's really exactly. true. Yeah, sure. Um, and I'll, I'll go with the grapes thing first because that's um, that's a bit easier. There are a few um, examples in the literature of dogs that have developed acute renal failure when they've had access to a large amount of, um, it's usually the, the dried grapes like raisins or sultanas, um, and, and they have developed this acute renal failure and some of them have died from this. So there is definitely a, a a toxicity there. We don't really understand the mechanism of what is causing it and it's only also a very new disease. You know, a hundred mm. years ago, grapes, not an issue in the world and then all of a sudden we're getting these few cases being being found. We are surmising that it might be due to, as, as you said, the um, uh, pesticides and things that are sprayed on the grapes, maybe preservatives that are put on the sultanas um, that are causing the, the toxicity, but we don't have any hard and fast literature on it. So for that reason, we do recommend that dogs are not fed large amounts of sultanas, raisins um, or grapes. Now I know of heaps of dogs, my own included, that will have the odd grape here and there and that is absolutely fine. It's typically say if a dog gets access to like a fruitcake or a plum pudding um, or the kids box of sultanas and they get a whole heap all at once, that can potentially cause toxicity. Um, so just because you know we don't know how many grapes or how many sultanas it's going to take to cause toxicity in this particular dog, we just say a blanket rule, hey we should avoid these in, in dogs and, and cats. Um, as far as other fruit and vegetables goes, there's really only a few that we need to put on the be careful of list. One of them is definitely onions. Um, onions can cause hemolytic anemia in dogs and cats and so we, we do advise to not feed that. Again, it is a dose-related poison. So you've got to have a whole heap of onion for it to cause the, the problem. Um, so, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I've cooked a bolognese and I gave my dog some bolognese sauce and it had onions in it, is it going to die? And so if it's only getting a little bit of bolognese and it's only once or twice, then no, they will be fine. But if you are feeding that bolognese, say, every single meal for a period of a week, yes, your dog will be at risk of hemolytic anemia um, and we need to be careful with that one. So onions and grapes, they're on the no list. Um, chocolate is on the no list. I'm not sure if anybody would actually share chocolate with a dog. Um, I wouldn't because I'm a chocoholic and <laughs> I don't, don't share my chocolate readily with anybody. Um, the chocolate does cause caffeine and theobromine toxicity in dogs. And again, it's, it's the dogs that found the Easter egg stash um, and gets a whole heap all at once. They're the dogs that have problems. Um, and I used to work in emergency and used to treat a lot of dogs with chocolate toxicity, which was, um, <laughs> they, they usually wow. went well. A bit sad, yeah. Um, oh, Wow. Yeah. What else is on the no list? Uh, garlic? Avocados. Uh, now, garlic, so garlic belongs to the same allium family as onions. And so if fed in a huge quantity, it has the potential of causing hemolytic anemia. But a small amount of garlic in a dog's diet is actually really beneficial. So it can offer a whole heap of vitamins and minerals and it can offer some um, prebiotic as well. And it's also thought to help repel fleas. So I'm happy to feed dogs a little bit of garlic here and there. You'd have to feed a bucket load of the garlic for it to cause that hemolytic anemia. But because because it belongs to the same family, there's a little bit of a be careful there. Ah, okay. And avocados you mentioned. And so avocado flesh is okay, but the seed and the skin can cause toxicity. So we, again, because some people might not differentiate, we just say don't feed avocado. Um, hmm. uh, macadamia nuts, I think, are on, on that list as well. Alcohol, obviously, is not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> How about uh, mushrooms? 
Yeah, um, so um, food-grade mushrooms absolutely fine and can provide a lot of good stuff and, and a lot of people use um, medicinal mushrooms in um, treatment for dogs for various ailments. Oh. Um, but basically all of your, you know, your in-season fruit and vegetables are generally fine. Um, you know, the organic would be best if you can afford it and have access to it um, and in-season is always best rather than stuff that's been grown artificially and shipped in from who knows where. Um, and a broad range of things is always good. I usually recommend to my clients to include as many of the leafy green type veggies as possible, so your spinach and your kale and your silver beet and um, Asian greens like bok choy and choy sum. Uh, fresh herbs like parsley and basil and mint um, are all good in there. Um, uh, you know, the tops of beetroots, if you buy beetroot with the tops on, those tops are quite good for them. Um, asparagus are really, really good for them because it's a really strong prebiotic as well. Um, you can feed carrots and peas and beans. Um, you can feed sweet potato. That's quite good and got a lot of goodness in it. I don't recommend a lot of potato, normal white potato, because it's, it's just a starch. Um, pumpkin is fine. So that really, almost all of the, the veggies that you would buy and eat for yourself are absolutely fine for dogs. Um, as I said, just avoid the onions, avoid the grapes. Um, and what about legumes? Legumes. Legumes are fine in small, um, in, in moderation. So you get a lot of, um, you know, you can get a lot of fibre from legumes and a lot of good vitamins and minerals. Um, in, if they are fed in large amounts, there can be problems with it. And um, I know, I think recently there's been a, a dry food that was a grain-free dry food um, that has been associated with heart disease in certain dogs because of um, a deficiency, because they yeah. had so many. Um, legumes in there. So uh, again, we, we shouldn't use legumes as the basis of the diet, um, but we, we can feed that from time to time. That's fine. Okay. Well, I feel a little guilty because um, I love making bone broth, you know. And yes. so when I make bone broth for myself, I'll often give him a couple of tablespoons and then have some warm water just to kind of dilute it. Um, yes. But I tend to make the bone broth with an onion and garlic. <laughs> but I'm not feeding him the onion and garlic except that it's in the bone broth. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I would think that if you're making bone broth that you intend to share with your dog, I would really limit the onion. Um, you can put the garlic in there. Bone broth as a, as a feed additive for dogs is incredibly beneficial um, and it's wonderful for unwell animals as well. Uh, so mm -hmm. I'm really a fan of feeding bone broth definitely, but you've got to watch the onion. And when I recommend bone broth for my patients, I, I recommend it without onion. Okay, good. Yeah, I just made some chicken feet broth and I made the first batch with no onions, no garlic, <laughs> uh, but I had some celery, I had some carrots, you know, that kind of thing. And then the yes. second batch, I, I did it for me. And so I labeled yep. it differently. <laughs> the onions yeah, well oh, yeah, that that's very interesting. Well, he seems to want to eat uh, everything. I think he did have uh, eat, um, what was it? Uh, some leafy green, and then he vomited. So I'm not sure, like in Chinese medicine, we would say if somebody had that, that maybe the greens was too, quote-unquote, cold. Um, mm -hmm. I don't mean temperature cold, but like yeah. cooling. So I don't know if that, have you ever seen that? Like why dogs would, like maybe it's unrelated to him eating greens, but it just happened to be that day that I fed him lettuce or something. Yeah, Organic it's actually... It's really well known that dogs will go out and eat grass and then vomit. And the age-old question is, is, did the dog eat the grass because it knew it was going to vomit and therefore it brought it up? Or did the dog eat the grass and then the grass caused the dog to vomit? Um, wow. Yeah, so which, which one is it? I think that dogs will often eat grass when they know that they're going to vomit in, in a way of, of 
enhancing that coming up. Um, and remember that dogs don't, if they eat grass, they don't actually digest that because they don't really have the digestive enzymes to break down grass. Um, as far as cooling and warming, I am not studied in Chinese medicine, so I'm, I'm just new to that aspect of, of foods and how they work. But um, I'm not I'm not sure that I'd say that it was definitely because the food was too cooling for that particular dog. It might have been that that dog just wanted to vomit and ate the greens and then it, that enabled that to happen. Dogs do vomit at will. You know, a, a vomiting dog, if it's just a single vomit bringing something up, that's not an unwell dog, um, a bit different to humans. So dogs do vomit very, very readily and sometimes they do it to clear their stomach um, and sometimes they will eat grass to enhance that and um, encourage that to come out. Ah, okay. Okay, so but yeah, I have to explain what's with the eating poop. Now, I don't think Apache has done that, at least not in front of me. <laughs> but why would dogs do that? Like, I mean, you wouldn't say to humans, eat poop, it's good for you. Like, no. No, absolutely. And it's completely socially unacceptable when we come to humans. Like, it just, it, it's revolting. And you see a dog do that, and then they come up for a kiss, and you say, no, I don't think so. Exactly. But in the animal world, that's completely natural. Um, for starters, if the... Um, if you're feeding a diet that's not really well digestible, then the poo has actually got a lot of food still in it. So they would eat that for the food component. They also can eat it for the probiotic component because there's a lot of bacteria in there that can be put back into the system. And there are a number of animals that do deliberately feed poo to their young to try and um, seed their gut with the bugs that need to be in it. So um, koalas are a really famous one, um, rabbits and guinea pigs as well. So these animals will actually produce a special poo to deliberately feed to their babies to get the bugs going in their gut that need to be there. So I know that for humans it's really a no-no and we don't even like to think about it, but in the animal world it's quite normal. And as I said, a dog in the wild or a dog scavenging will absolutely scavenge for poo. And if you've ever seen a dog go past that litter tray, they just help themselves and clean it out. And that's not an unnatural thing because cat poo's got a lot of protein in it. So to them it's just a food source. Um, although we just don't like to think about it. <laughs> Wow, fascinating. Well, I'm, I'm thinking it's a way you're, you're, that your body's detoxifying, so why would you want to eat something that, yeah. you know, your body's trying to get rid of? But now that you said about the probiotics and uh, the remaining food fibers, it does make sense, actually. Um, uh, what about, um, do you have any advice for motion sickness? Now, I know Apache has been... Um, you know, we, we don't we don't go a lot, <laughs> but anyway, we have taken him out a couple of times, and uh, I think it's because he's looking out the window, and it's sort of like nystagmus, like his eyes just go back and forth, back and forth, and I think he gets car sick, because uh, the times that I've had him in my lap, I don't know whether that's safe or not, but, you know, in my lap and in the front seat, he doesn't vomit, so <laughs> any advice, like diet-wise, or... Oh, no, really. I know that um, motion sickness or car sickness in dogs can be um, for two different reasons. So there are a small group of dogs that will have true motion sickness like humans do. You know, they're flick watching the scenery flick past and their inner ear is not... Um, correlating with what they're seeing on the outside and so they feel nauseous and vomit. Um, but a lot of dogs, uh, even particularly young dogs, will actually have motion, will have car sickness because of anxiety. Um, and so they, they just don't know where they're going. They don't know what the outcome's going to be. They're not sure if they feel good and so they'll salivate and some will, will vomit. Um, and that, that can be a different mechanism. So it's more a, um, an anxiety-based problem rather than a motion sickness-based problem. And for those young dogs, they typically do grow out of it if given enough time. Um, as far as diet to try and help that, I think that ginger can help um, prior to travel um, and also having an empty tummy can help prior to travel um, and trying to make as little fuss about the trip as possible 
can help mm -hmm. just if it's got an anxiety component. Um, and doing, um, putting some effort into doing a lot of really short trips to somewhere cool and exciting can take away that anxiety basis to it. So, you know, just going in the car to the local beach or to a local park or, you know, somewhere where the dog gets a lot of positive reinforcement and then they start to see car rides as cool and fun um, and then they can look forward to it a bit better. But if it goes on, then it might be a true motion sickness type problem and um, they will either grow out of it, um, you can feed some ginger um, or avoid travel. <laughs> Not an easy one. <laughs> okay, yeah, actually I forgot to ask you about ginger because that was my first go-to and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not sure if this is okay. So thank yep. you for saying that, that we can give him some ginger. And, and it's funny because when we go, he wants to go. Yeah, um, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think he really likes looking out the window. And uh, at first, you know, he wants to come in the front seat. But in some ways, I understand that more because if he can look out front, he doesn't yes. seem to get car sick. But when he's looking out the side on all the trees, and we have tons of trees here, go back and forth, back and forth, you know, then I think he, he starts to get sick. Um, yeah, yep. same you know. as humans. Yeah, it's just our yeah. right to our eyes and the, the message is being confused. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's great. Um, so now in, in the stores, I see that there's just so many different varieties of like dehydrated raw food. Now, yes. I am not probably time-wise uh, going to probably look up how to like mix raw food food for my dog as much like I would yeah. maybe give him like that raw chicken um, you know feed or you know mm -hmm. something like that um, yeah. or maybe a raw egg maybe that's pastured but you know is am I really like is he really missing out because I'm not like cooking for him do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely not. No, I think there's there are so many new kind of I guess boutique lines of food that are coming out these days um, that you can absolutely go to the pet store and find an appropriate diet. And even if like I have some clients who say I just I just want to feed dry food because it's easy um, and I just don't want to think about it anymore. It's like well okay, but even if you just added some vegetables and you know some bones to a dry food diet, you're going to improve the quality of that nutrition. Um, and so the same you you can definitely find good quality commercial varieties of food. There are, as I said, bath varieties of food. So they're the, the mixed up already raw foods that um, come in like a minced form and you can feed that easily. The air dried and the freeze dried raw foods that are available now are also excellent quality. They don't lose any of the nutrients by that processing at all. Um, a lot of them require you to add water to that product to rehydrate it prior to feeding. And I think that's right. really important to make sure the moisture is given back. Um, but then there are also some brands of food that are um, that are dehydrated and designed to be fed dehydrated. Um, and I think that's fine, but I'd still be very careful about cats with those diets. Um, and I don't think they're appropriate long-term for cats because cats are desert animals by evolution and they just don't drink enough water. So we've got to feed them food that has got the moisture in it. Um, but yeah, people don't need to feel bad about being unable to home prepare food for their pets. You can definitely buy good quality things in the um, in the pet stores, you just need some guidance about what is right to feed, um, and you can just you can also just supplement a little bit. You can feed your leftovers to your dog as long as it doesn't have too much onion and, and grapes and things that are um, potentially bad. Um, you can feed leftover veggies. A lot of people say, "Hey, I've got toddlers and they never eat all their food. Can that be fed to the dog?" Absolutely, it can. Um, so I think there are a lot of small steps that you can take to improve the nutritional quality of their diet um, without feeling pressured to have to do, "Oh my God, a massive prep of raw food every day and get all the proportions right." It's quite overwhelming for a lot of people um, and I certainly don't want to get people, I don't want to put people off feeding fresh food to their pet because of being time pressured. We're all time pressured um, and you absolutely can find good quality stuff in the grocery store. It just doesn't come in a shelf stable bag of dry food.
Mm, interesting. Well, there is this one brand. Um, I won't say what it is, but but it's in here, and and uh, it's the only brand I think that she can get that is like this raw food, but it's actually uh, they somehow make it into nuggets. They somehow dehydrate it into these mm-hmm. nuggets, and um, so it looks like kibble. You know, it looks like okay. kibble. Um, and we put it in this, uh, we just got this Kong ball thing that looks like a weeble wobble. Um, yes. So it's weighted on the bottom. And so he has to kind of, has one hole, and he has to play with it to get it out the hole. Yes. <laughs> so there's, obviously, when we're using that, he's not getting it rehydrated, you know, with water. Do you think that's that's safe? I'm not doing it all the time. Absolutely safe, and I think that's wonderful for a whole heap of reasons. So, first of all, dogs dogs are really good at drinking when they need to. They're not cats, um, oh. so the dehydration issue is not as important in dogs. But I think what you're describing sounds very um, similar to a, a ball that we have here called a bobolot, um, and that is an amazing form of environmental enrichment for a dog. As I said, to give a dog a task of trying to get their nutrition by thinking and problem solving is incredibly important to their psychological well-being. Um, so, providing a you know part of his daily ration in this form that makes him go, oh my God, how am I going to get this food? I know it's in there and I really want it. How am I going to get it? Um, is really, really important. So feeding feeding food in a puzzle toy uh, is really, really good. Um, and I, I can't stress that enough. Environmental enrichment and making a dog think for their nutrition is really good. I think we should be looking at moving away from just popping the food in the bowl for dogs. Um, you know, In the wild um, in, and in the natural environment, they'd have to do a whole lot of problem solving in order to get their nutrition. Um, and that's really important for their brain stimulation and serotonin levels and um, ah. yeah, emotional yeah, yeah that, you know, after you said that last time, we we started to do more of that um, because we were just getting him to, you know, uh, lie down and then just stay and then we would say, okay, and then he would get it, you know, but he didn't really have to work too much <laughs> for it. But now he has to like, you know, do all sorts of tricks. Now, to, now he's been, I did go away, um, uh, you know, for, for you know, con- um, training and so uh, I was away two weeks out of the month last month, and I got to tell you, when I came back the second time, although he was with Dad the whole week, and we tried to FaceTime, I'm not sure he really knew who was on the other end, but um, when I came in, he actually sounded like he was crying. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I felt like, oh, you know, and then when I left for work the next few days, he's did that he sort of barked and cried kind of thing and then now he doesn't do that anymore so obviously he was reacting to me not not being there yeah I mean you're you're somebody who's formed a really strong bond with and you disappeared for a period of time and he wasn't able to understand that Um, and so yeah that that happens Um, it is important when we interact with our dogs that we behave in a way that makes them be clear and sure that we are the the leader of our social unit, our family or our pack, um, because if they feel like they're a bit higher up in the leadership of your family unit, then they feel responsible for you. So when you disappeared and didn't come back, he he kind of felt like it was his responsibility to find you. Um, so I will often recommend to people that they, when they first come home after um, being away for even just a day at work or away for a weekend, just spend five minutes not interacting with the dog. I know it's really, really hard because they're really excited to see you and you're really excited to see them, but you want to behave as though a leader would, like, yeah, I'm just coming home. There's no big deal. It's not up to you if I come and go. It's my decision. Um, and just spend a few minutes just, you know, 
talking to the other members of the house and putting your bag down, making a cup of tea, and then turn around and call the dog to you and give lots of love and cuddles and all the, the love that you want to give. But just spend, just by spending a few moments being, um, I'm trying to think of what the right word is, but you know, you're, you're, you're the independent unit of that family, not mm. them. Um, and you need to behave as a leader and it's up to you to decide when you come and go and you don't have to ask permission of the dog. And I don't mean that to try and be um, like a firm leader, but all you're, all you're doing in that is you're, um, you're establishing a sense of calm in that dog because they understand that you're the leader and they understand then that they're not responsible for you. So when you come and go, that's fine because it wasn't their responsibility. Um, so I'm not sure if that makes sense. Yeah, um, that really helps a lot. I never really thought about it from that point of view that they would feel responsible for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a lot of anxiety in dogs is because of a mismatch of the leadership of the household. And I don't like people to think that they have to be the, you know, the alpha dog and the dictator of the house and tell everybody that they're the boss. It's not about that. It's about just behaving as though they're the clear leader. So you just be the leader and then the others will follow. Um, and then that way it creates a great sense of calm and stability for that dog and their anxiety levels can greatly reduce. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, he definitely is much more vocal, I think, now. Um, and maybe, you know, people are like, oh, you're probably, maybe you're spoiling him, you know, because um, <laughs> I'll let him sit on my lap and, you know, we'll watch a movie and I'll pet him and stuff like that. But then, you know, today, for example, I was, uh, um, I, he, I would put something in his bowl, which was, I think, fresh pear, a slice of fresh pear. Oh, he loves that, right? So this time he wasn't, I mean, he was just raring to go and he wouldn't listen, you know, like he, he, he just wanted to go for it. Like, how dare you prevent me from getting at it, you know, and he actually barked. You know? I was like, what? No. So I was like, hmm, I wonder if that's because I was away, you know, and now he's, I don't know, being test, like testing me or something like that. It's not, so, it, I, I don't, I don't think that dogs, you know, challenge the leadership, so to speak, in um, in the social unit of a family. But there's been an upheaval because you, as that member, has been away, and now you've come back, and he's like, "Oh, where is the dynamic in the family balance again?" So he's just trying to work it out. It's not a challenge; he's just trying to work it out. And so you put a bit of food down, and he wanted it, and he went to get it. The, the best thing to do if he didn't listen to you is just to put it aside and walk away. Okay, you didn't behave appropriately, so you don't get it. But then five minutes later, go through the motions and offer it again. And if he behaves in the appropriate way, then he gets it. If he doesn't, again, it just puts it, is put aside and you walk away. Um, so th that's the best way to really reinforce what appropriate and inappropriate behaviour is for a dog. Ah. If they give an inappropriate response, there's no reprimand or telling off. They haven't done it because they're naughty or they're bad or they're trying to challenge you. They've done it because they don't understand what's expected of them. And maybe it just took a two-week absence for him to forget the routine. Um, but if they don't give the response that you're looking for, just stop the interaction and completely walk away and then definitely come back and do it again in, in a five-minute break um, and, you know, looking for that correct response. And he'll get it because he'll be like, oh, I want the pair and I want to please you because I'm a dog and that's what I do. Um, and so once, as soon as he gives the correct response and you give him his reward and they'll go, oh, that's it, I've got it again. Oh, great. So I don't have to say no. No. <laughs> what you're saying. No, no, we've got to move away from thinking our dogs are bad. Dogs are never bad. Dogs are either confused or fearful um, or they just haven't, they just don't know what is expected of them, but they just don't have the ability to actually be naughty or bad. They, they just don't, they're just not children. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's so funny. That's so funny. So, oh my gosh, this has been so awesome. Thank you so much. I got like a private tutorial. This is great. Um, <laughs> 
So, uh, Dr. Kelly, maybe we should um, talk about your your programs. Yeah, um, thank you. Yes. So, share but with I, us your programs. Yeah. So, I'm a veterinarian in Victoria. I um, have the Benton's Road Veterinary Clinic. Um, but what I'm trying to do to extend my reach a little bit is putting together what's called the Pet Wellness Pathway. Um, and this is an online education forum for pet owners to teach them more about how to um, encourage their pet dog and later on their pet cat to be as healthy as they can. So the Pet Wellness Pathway has three modules to it. Um, one is the Real Food Matters module, that's the first one, and that's you know everything that we've been talking about, the importance of fresh food nutrition and how important it is to the health of the dog, um, how you can do it, um, how you can encourage a healthy gut microbiome, which is really important, um, and, and really teaching people how they can provide good nutrition at home without relying on commercial products. Um, the next part goes into disease and immunity and toxic overload. Um, so I teach people about how to monitor for disease and how to treat when appropriate. Um, and again, not just rely on the blanket uh, preventative medications that are available everywhere because these are um, causing you know, toxic accumulation in our pets and again, not ideal for long-term health and vitality. The final uh, module of the pet wellness pathway um, comes back to behavior um, and a little bit of what we just touched on there, you know, how you can behave in your house to encourage stability and calm and confidence in your pet, um, how you can work on uh, environmental enrichment um, and really trying to establish psychological well-being in your pet, which I think is really overlooked. You know, we've got a lot of backyard pets that are just expected to behave um, mm -hmm. and because they're naughty, um, but there's a lot that we can do to encourage it. So the three modules um, make up the pet wellness pathway um, and it will be very soon available online um, and we're excited to be launching it. We're in the process of recording the um, the uh, what are they the, the modules at the moment um, and yeah we're having a lot of fun getting all the information into this package for people to really learn about what it takes to keep their pets healthy. Oh fantastic so this is um, like an online program and is there like um, homework or a live component or one-on-one -on -one? can you share um, will, a little bit more? It is an online program so there's three modules and each module has got three steps um, and so you work through it you'll be able to um, enroll in a, um, an online membership website where you can work through the modules at your own rate um, and then there will also be um, at the end of each module like a, a meeting room online so I'm trying to offer it to a wider variety of people than, than can just access me locally um, so there will be yeah like a meeting room I guess like this where people can ask questions and tailor the information to their individual pet and their pets needs. Um, Wonderful. I love it. I love it. Yes, that's so exciting. So if people go to your website, uh, you know, when about would they be able to see it? In the um, we are hoping to launch this program in June, so it's not very far away, and there will be information on our veterinary clinic website. Um, so if, if you were interested in um, putting in a, a, a sort of pre-interest for it, you could email us through the website link um, and we will add you to the growing list of people that would like access to this program um, and contact you as soon as it is available. Okay, fantastic. Good. Yep. So I'm going to just going to um, say the website name again for folks listening on the call. So it's www.bentonsroadvets.com.au. So that's all one word, Benton's Road Vet, so B-E-N-T-O-N-S-R-O-A-D-V-E-T, all one word, dot com, dot A-U. And um, 
you can take a look at the there's a the little contact button right at the top next to the home and of course they have the blog as well so if you're wanting to be on that list to know when this is coming up you can definitely put your name and email address uh, and even your pet's name <laughs> <laughs> on the contact uh, so you can get on the list oh yeah this is really exciting I want to thank you so much um, uh, Dr. Kelly for, for being on the show today, for answering all these questions. I also want to thank uh, Lynn and David for their contribution and great questions too. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Karen. I really appreciate the opportunity to get more of this information out there because I think that the health and well-being of our pets is so important. We all want them to be with us for as long as we possibly can and this absolutely is the way forward. So I thank you again for allowing me to share my information on your radio show. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a packed full of great value. So um, I'm just incredibly grateful. I know our listeners are too. And of course, I am also grateful for our listeners listening to the show. And until next time, bye for now.